we welcome you to the Tabernacle Podcast, brought to you by the Tabernacle Baptist Church in Hickory, North Carolina. If you'd like to learn more about Tabernacle, you can visit our website, tabernaclebaptistchurch.com. You can find other sermons like this one on Apple Podcast, YouTube, and Sermon Audio. It is our prayer that God has used this message to be an encouragement to your heart. I'd like for you to take your Bible, if you would, please, and go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're making our way uh, through the book of 1 Corinthians and nearly to the end of uh, this letter that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. And uh, we've come to the 15th chapter. And the theme of the 15th chapter is the truth of the resurrection. And uh, we find that the Apostle Paul here is giving us profound truth regarding the doctrine, the teaching of the resurrection of Christ. By the way, Satan has been working uh, since the Lord's death and his resurrection, since the morning of it, Satan has been at work to deny it and to deceive people concerning it. And uh, though he worked to deny it in the beginning, there was no denial. And uh, we noticed in the opening verses of 1 Corinthians, you may want to write some of these things down. I just want you to have sort of an outline of this chapter. But in the uh, beginning verses, uh, we see that uh, Paul declares that this is a proven truth. It's a proven truth. And uh, we noted in the opening message of this chapter, we noted there were four proofs that the Apostle Paul offered to us uh, in the beginning verses, uh, in uh, verses 1 through 11. So uh, we know concerning this truth of the resurrection that it is uh, a proven truth. And then in in verses 12 through 19, uh, we saw that it is a primary truth. It's significant. If you do away uh, with the doctrine of the resurrection, if you say that there is no life beyond this life, if you say that Christ has not risen, uh, then all that we believe is vain. All that we believe is vain. And then we noted last week, or maybe it was two weeks ago now, we noted uh, a powerful truth, the powerful truth of the resurrection. And really, you could use the word purposeful because God has a purpose, an eternal purpose that he is working uh, through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and the resurrection of the dead that ends or culminates with uh, the Lord Jesus Christ bringing all things under his dominion and restoring all that was lost when Adam sinned restoring that order, defeating the foes of God. As we saw in verse 26, the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Christ exalted and reigning over all things. And the Lord Jesus Christ presenting a restored order, a restored earth, a restored humanity back to the Father in the condition that he made it in. What a glorious work that Christ is doing. And we're grateful to be a part of that. 
And we saw that that was the powerful truth of the resurrection. Well, in verses 29 and preceding, uh, we're going to find the practical truth of the resurrection. The practical truth of the resurrection. And how it relates, uh, or how it, it, it uh, relates to us individually, we know how it relates in the uh, previous discussions with our faith and all that we believe, but how does this impact us, this practical truth of the resurrection, how does that impact us personally? And so I want us to look just at a few verses tonight, and we'll begin reading in verse number 29, 1 Corinthians 15, and verse 29, and I will tell you before we begin that verse 29 is one of the most difficult verses in all the scripture to understand. And, uh, and you have uh, one of uh, the most challenged pastors in front of you, right? And so the most challenged pastor and the most challenging verse, uh, it doesn't usually make for a good recipe, but we'll do our best, all right? And I hope when, when we're finished that, that it'll be a help to you and uh, we'll gain some understanding. So let's look at verses 29 through 34. He says, else what shall, I, what shall they do which are baptized for the dead if the dead rise not at all? Now in verse 12, Paul says, if Christ be preached that he rose from, from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection? And then he says, if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And so Paul in verses 12 through 19 deals with uh, the, the fallout or the implications of the fact that uh, there is a denial that is taking place in the church of Corinth by some false teachers who were, uh, who were discrediting uh, the doctrine of the resurrection. And so he gives some implications for that as it relates to the church. In verse 29, he picks up that argument again, and, and he relates that to the individual believer. He says, else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead if the dead rise not at all? Why are they then baptized for the dead? And why stand we in jeopardy every hour? I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die daily. If after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantageth it me? If the dead rise not, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Awake to righteousness and sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. I want us to notice this evening uh, some practical truths regarding the resurrection. And we're going to see three, three practical ways that this impacts us. If, if the dead rise not at all, that was the that was the consideration that Paul uh, uses in verse 29. In other words, if, if you follow the logical conclusion that these false teachers have introduced into the church, that there is no resurrection. He said, if you follow that out logically, then you have to arrive at some conclusions. And so he asked them to make a reasonable consideration here concerning this erroneous and false teaching. And he, he gives three areas uh, of our Christian life 
that really depends upon the doctrine of the resurrection. And I'll state them for you, and then we'll look at them. First of all is our salvation. Our salvation depends upon the doctrine of the resurrection, the hope of the resurrection. If you remove the hope of the resurrection, then we have no salvation. So this is an important doctrine. Uh, secondly, if, if, you, if you do away with the doctrine of the resurrection, if there is no hope of the resurrection, then that impacts our service. There's no reason to serve God if there's no resurrection. And, and then thirdly, uh, this hope of the resurrection, uh, it, it, it results in our sanctification. So if you remove the hope of the resurrection, uh, then there is no purpose for our sanctification, for holy living, for righteous living. And so when you remove this doctrine, it has great consequence. And doctrine is important. There are those today who minimize doctrine, but doctrine is important. What we believe is important. God has recorded these truths in his word. And the scripture is profitable. And one of the elements that make it profitable or one of the reasons it is profitable for us is for doctrine. What we believe and what we believe often determines how we behave. That's why doctrine is important. That's why what we believe is important because it impacts our behavior. And so we're going to note some things here, and uh, I hope you'll, you'll, you'll write them down and, and follow along with me. Uh, first of all, the hope of the resurrection, the hope of the resurrection determines our salvation. Now, I'm going to try to tackle this very difficult verse 29, all right? And I've read a number of commentaries, and uh, some of the people that I respect and people that I read have made this statement after studying verse 29. They're not sure what it means. <laughs> and so I won't pretend to stand in front of you as if I have the key that others can't find, all right? Uh, so let's do our best. I think, though, we may, not, uh, we may not be able to say with authority all that is intended here, but what we can say with authority is what it implies and its context. And uh, it's no doubt in the context of salvation. There are those who misuse verse 29 for a false doctrine that the Scripture does not teach. And so let's look at the verse and we'll talk some about it, all right? Uh, he says in verse 29, else, what shall they do? If, there's, if, there's, if there is no resurrection, what shall they do which are baptized for the dead if the dead rise not at all? Why are they then baptized for the dead? So when we read this initially, we begin to see, well, there are people who are being baptized for the dead. And we know that uh, in the early church, there were false teachers who introduced a baptism for the dead. In other words, a, a proxy baptism to say that if you have a dead loved one or a dead friend and you're concerned about them getting to heaven, 
Well, then you could be baptized in their place. You could be baptized on their behalf. Now, we understand that if there is a major doctrine in the Scripture, then the Scripture is going to be consistent to teach us that doctrine. And Paul shows how that we're justified in Romans chapter 5 by faith. And he lays out a case for that to, to demonstrate to us that that is a, a biblical principle that has, that has been applied throughout all of human history. That Abraham himself was justified by faith. He believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. So we know that we can't lift one obscure passage and say out of the scripture and establish a doctrine. But there are those who did in the early church. They said, look, we believe that you can uh, be baptized on behalf of other people. And when you're baptized for them, then you have essentially secured their salvation. By the way, it's interesting to note that the Mormons believe and practice this. They believe in proxy baptism. Uh, Gordon Frazier, who is an expert on Mormonism, says that the Mormons are constantly doing work for the dead by compiling genealogies of their ancestors and other notables and being baptized for them. In fact, the Mormon church owns the largest genealogy website in the world. And I, I, I think I saw this. I may be incorrect. I think they just sold it. For billions of dollars. And uh, their interest in the dead is that they would be baptized. He goes on to say, the Mormons are very serious about all this. One Mormon admitted to me, he writes, that he had been baptized over 5,000 times for the dead. Uh, the Mormon religion teaches that Non-Mormons cannot enter into heaven until someone has been baptized for them. This is a by-proxy baptism. And we can trace this back to the first century and to false teachers uh, who, who taught such things. Now, we know from Paul's letter to Corinth, we've been reading it, right? And we're learning that there were all kinds of problems there. So it's very possible that what Paul is referring to here is those who were in the church who believed this doctrine and taught it and practiced it. But he is not commending this doctrine in any way. Not at all. In fact, you'll find no other passage of Scripture that would reflect this or teach this. But as John Phillips says, it would seem that at Corinth, some were questioning the doctrine of the resurrection and others actually being baptized by proxy for believers who had died uh, before being baptized. So you can see the confusion that was in the church, right? You've got people talking in tongues and they don't know what they're saying. You've got services that are chaotic. You've got divisions and strifes. You have false teachers coming in. You have some who are saying there is no resurrection. And then you have others who say, yes, there is a resurrection. In fact, I need to be baptized for my dead friends and relatives so that they can get to heaven. Now, remember, we're in the first century. It's the first century church. And Satan is working to deceive people. By the way, he's still working. And though we have the scripture, he seems to have made a lot of headway today, right? These people did not have the New Testament. This is the infancy of the church. But Paul is saying here, 
if there is no resurrection, or at least perhaps he's saying here, if there is no resurrection, uh, then why in the world would someone be baptized for the dead if the dead rise not at all? He's just, in, in, in some eyes, he is saying to them, or a view of this passage is that Paul is saying to them, if you believe this by proxy baptism, why in the world would you believe it if you're saying there's no resurrection? He's revealing the inconsistencies of their false teaching and what they believe. There's another view to this. In fact, there are many views to this verse. Uh, One view says that essentially that baptism, because it is an ordinance for believers. In other words, those who are baptized, if it's done in the biblical way, right, are those who have already believed upon the name of the Lord. And and the case is made that those who are baptized then represent those who are saved, and the testimony of those who have died as they have watched them live and die has been used of God to bring that person to salvation. But if there is no resurrection then what good does that do? So while we may have different views of interpretation on verse 29, while we may not not fully understand all that is being said here, this we can know he is definitely speaking about salvation. This has to do with salvation. And what Paul is saying, he's saying if there is no resurrection from the dead, then we have no salvation. And if we have no salvation, then why would we even practice believer's baptism? And so we understand this. If, if, if we take away, if we remove the doctrine of the resurrection, then what good is salvation? What are we being saved from? We're being saved from sin, right? What does sin produce in us? Death, death, an eternal death. If there's no resurrection, then what incentive is there for us to be saved? Paul's going to make that case in just a moment. So we need to understand that, that, that the, the practical implication here of this doctrine is the hope of the resurrection is the basis for our salvation. If you remove that hope, then you remove the, the need for salvation. Uh, when when, when uh, I was a child and I was confronted with the message of the gospel and the appeal for salvation was made, the message was delivered that I am a sinner. This is the message that all people need to hear, right? The message was delivered that I'm a sinner, and as a result of my sin, I'm going to die. And when I die, if I die in my sin, I'm going to an eternity in hell, apart from God. Well, that's a motivation. That's a motivation for me. I don't want to die and go to hell. And and because of that motivation, 
When I hear the message of the gospel, or when I heard it as a young boy, I understood that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for me because he loved me. He died for me. He took my hell upon him. He paid the price for my sin. He suffered my death so that I could live with him throughout all eternity. And when I heard that message and I understood that message, then I became a Christian. But when you remove that message from the gospel, when you say that there is no life beyond this one, then what motivation does anyone have to be saved? What fear would they have of an eternity without God if there is no resurrection? So this is a very important doctrine, the hope of the resurrection determines our salvation. Then secondly, in verse number 30, the hope of the resurrection determines our service. By the way, how many of you think you've got verse 29 at least enough to understand what he's saying? Would you, oh, now, come on. Some of you going to have to raise your hand because some of you are just looking at me. All right? If you don't have a clue, just ask Brother Odom. He'll help you with it, all right? <laughs> Let's look at verse 30. Paul makes another argument. He's saying, look, what's the point of being baptized? What's the point of being saved if there is no resurrection? And then he says, and if there is no resurrection, why stand we in jeopardy every hour? I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantageth it me if the dead rise not? And then he concludes with this statement. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Now he's borrowing a slogan that was used. There were those who believed that life is over, once a man dies, and so if you're going to have any enjoyment, if you're going to have any fulfillment in this life, then you need to get all you can and can all you get. You need to drink up life to its fullest. You need to enjoy every pleasure. You don't need to be considered about others. You don't need to be considered about any standard of righteousness. You just simply need uh, to enjoy life to its fullest. Well, if you remove the truth of the resurrection from Christianity then basically what does that result in? That results in a hedonistic, selfish religion. That's what he's saying. And there's no reason to serve. He says in verse 30, why stand we in jeopardy every hour? Now we know that Paul was saved on the road to Damascus. We know that God called Paul uh, to, to serve him. He said, he said I, have, I have a work for him to do. He's going to suffer great things for me. He's going to uh, declare the message of Christ to the Gentile world. That's what Paul did. He began with Barnabas. He and Barnabas uh, traveled together, and uh, he took his first missionary trip. And along the way, he suffered greatly. We know he returned to the church at Jerusalem. He and Barnabas parted ways, 
And uh, he, Paul then goes with Silas, and he has others who accompany him and meet him along the way. Timothy, of course, becoming one of his co-laborers among others. And Paul will dedicate the remainder of his life to the message of the gospel, preaching the gospel. But along the way, he's going to suffer many things. In order to serve God, there was a price to pay, a price to pay. And Paul is saying, I'm paying that price. I am suffering for the sake of the gospel. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, if you'd like to turn there, Paul is declaring his sufferings. He's speaking to those who were his critics, who sought to discredit him. He says in verse 21 of 2 Corinthians 11, I speak as concerning reproach as though we had been weak, howbeit whereinsoever any is bold, I speak foolishly, I am bold also. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. He is, he is declaring his credentials, his qualifications. And then verse 23, are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool, I am more. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure. That is, Paul was beaten with stripes. As Christ was beaten with the cat of nine tails, Paul received stripes. Why did he receive stripes? Because he preached the gospel. In stripes above measure. I can't even count them, he said. It would take one time for that to happen to any of us, and we would never forget it. And in this day, when people quit serving the Lord because somebody hurt their feelings, I don't know how many of us would make it through stripes above measure. But he persevered. He kept his eyes on Jesus. He said, in prisons, more frequent. In deaths, oft. Literally, his life was in danger. In fact, he says here in verse number 30, uh, verse 31, I die daily. He's not talking about his positional sanctification here, that death to self. It's not what he's talking about. He's talking about physical imminent danger that he was under at all times. People were constantly trying to kill Paul. The Jews were following him everywhere he went, the Judaizers. They were following him everywhere he went. They were seeking to stir up government officials. They were seeking to stir up the Jews. They were seeking, seeking to stir up the Gentiles in whatever town he went into to have him killed. Paul lived under the constant threat of death. Then we continue to read in verse 24 of 2 Corinthians 11. Of the Jews, five times received I 40 stripes, save one. Now, it was the Romans who carried out that execution or that sentence against Christ. The Jews didn't do it. But here he finds, he says, the Jews did it to me five times. 
But if you go back in the context, remember what he said, above measure. Can't even count them. But he did remember that of the Jews, five times received I 40 stripes save one. 39 lashes. Verse 25, thrice was I beaten with rods, once was I stoned, thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day have I been in the deep, in journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils by mine own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, beside those things that are without, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. Paul, why were you able? How were you able? What motivated you to endure so many trials and a, such a, a great magnitude of sufferings. How did you continue to serve God in the face of all that? Because, he would say to us, of the hope of the resurrection. Because I knew, he would say to us, that there was coming a day when I would stand at the judgment seat of Christ. And that I would give an account for the deeds that I've done in the body, for what I've done with the opportunity that God has given me. Have I been faithful to the calling? Have I been devoted to my Savior? Have I served him with my all in all? You see, all of us have that reality to live. We are going to stand before God. We are in the hope of the resurrection. There is a life to come. And if you remove that promise, if you remove that hope, if you remove that accountability, because really the resurrection provides an accountability for us, we're going to stand before God. If you dismiss that, if you remove that, then he says, why in the world do we continue suffering? Why do we continue serving? Why do we bother? Why do we bother? If after the manner of men... He says, I have fought with beasts at Ephesus. What is he talking about here? Did Paul actually fight with real beasts? Well, we don't know. We don't have that anywhere else in Scripture given to us. There's no record of it, no scriptural record of it. But what do we know about Christians in the first century? They were placed in the, in the Colosseums, and wild animals were turned loose. Is Paul literally speaking of wild animals? Perhaps. Is he speaking of men who had a, a beastly nature, who, who were motivated by the devil, perhaps possessed by demons? We don't know, but this is what Paul says. He says, I have fought with beasts at Ephesus. If, if there is no resurrection, what good did that do? Why would I endure all of these things? If the dead rise not, then he concludes with this argument, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Let's just forget all of this. Let's go home and let's have a party. If there's no resurrection. So we see here, if you remove, if you dismiss, if you discredit the doctrine of the resurrection, 
then you discredit salvation and you discredit our motive for service. Well, then thirdly, we see that the hope of the resurrection produces our sanctification. The hope of the resurrection produces our sanctification. Notice what he says in verse 33, be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Awake to righteousness and sin not. For some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. He's saying you need to understand what damage this doctrine can do. You see, as I said earlier, belief determines behavior. And when you have the wrong belief, it will result in bad behavior. So we need to understand what the Bible declares. We need to hold to doctrinal truth. And this is a doctrine that we hold to firmly, the doctrine of the resurrection of Christ, that Christ came to this earth, he was the incarnation, born of a virgin. That's a cardinal doctrine. We dare not let that go, right? If he was not virgin born, then he's not the son of God. If he's not the son of God, then he was born of a man. And all men are sinners, and therefore his, his atoning death on the cross would not have been atoning at all because he would have died as a common man. But he was not born of a man. He was born of a woman. He was supernaturally conceived by the work of the Holy Ghost. He's the Son of God. He came and lived a perfect, righteous, sinless life. He went to the cross and he died an atoning death. His blood was shed for the remission of our sin. He was buried and he rose again. That is an essential part of the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. You cannot do away with any of those doctrines. And Satan is working in this first century, and he continues to work today, to diminish these cardinal doctrines. Paul is just helping this confused, chaotic church to say to them, you cannot do away with these doctrines. And you need to understand that when you hear the latest trend, by the way, we're introduced to the latest trend on a daily basis, right? The latest school of thought, the latest questioning. Uh, Our young people are growing up in an era where questioning truth is a virtue. It's a virtue. Deconstructionism, you know, in other words, we're going to tear everything apart. This is the postmodern age in which we live. And this, this spirit has, has permeated uh, our, our culture and our society, and it, it creeps into our thinking even as believers. And when we do away with this doctrine, there's no basis for our salvation, there's no basis for our service and there's no basis for our sanctification. What is, what is sanctification? It is holiness. It is separation from the world unto God. It is living a life that pleases the Lord. Just as we discussed this morning, when those mighty men heard David say, oh, I want to drink of that water in the well of Bethlehem, what he desired became their desire. When we love the Lord Jesus Christ, his desires will become ours. We will delight in him, and we will delight to do his will. We will desire 
to be with him. We will desire to be like him. He will accomplish his great purpose in our lives. What is his purpose for us? It is that we be conformed to the image of his son. And in order for that to happen daily, we have to present our bodies in Romans 12 as a living sacrifice. That's a good prayer for you to pray each day. Help me, Lord Jesus, today that I would not be conformed to this world, to the thinking of this world, to the behavior of this world, to the beliefs of this world. Who runs the system of this world? Satan. He is a, he is a liar and he has filled this world with lies and he's seeking to conform us to the image of this world. So we're in a daily battle. And so we need to seek the Lord that we would not be conformed to this world, but that we would be transformed. How are we transformed? By the renewing of our mind, to get our mind right. That's where the battle is, right? In the way that we think. And oftentimes our experiences and our hurts and our pains and, and our disappointments and, and, and those things begin to shape how we think. And if we're not careful, we're turning away from the truth. I spoke with someone recently who called out the name of a friend to me and said, would you pray for him? He once served the Lord and, and, and knew God. But I, I've noticed that lately he's talking about nature and worshiping nature and the spirits of nature. And he asked me to pray for this person. You see, there are many believers who, who are being allured and, and deceived and, and led away from these truths, the truths of God's word. That's why it's so important for us to establish that the Bible is our sole authority in matters of faith and practice. That's why I have a conviction as a pastor that it's my job not just to pick out passages of Scripture and, and come up with three points in a poem and try to keep you, you know, entertained. I'm a terrible entertainer. You know that, right? The only thing I can do is try to preach what the Bible says. And if I start cherry-picking... You know, if I start cherry picking the things that I like to talk about or the hobby horses that I might have, then you're going to get some, some of those messages, but you're not going to get a balance. You're not going to get a truth. You're not going to gain an understanding of the word of God. And when Timothy as a confused pastor wrote to Paul and said, I don't know what to do to help these Ephesians. What did Paul say? He said, preach the word, just preach the Bible. It's sufficient. And here's what I believe. This is what my conviction is. If I, as a pastor, have been given the opportunity to serve you and serve the Lord, then my job is to preach the Bible and let the Bible do the work. Oh, you can't imagine how many times I've been tempted to address this subject or address that subject. I have people who oftentimes tell me, Pastor, you need to hit this, and oh, you need to hit that. And let me tell you, when I start hitting this and that, I'm going to create problems and messes. I'm like a dog chasing his tail. I don't want to do that. I won't do that. I want to preach the word of God. And you need to understand the Bible. You need to understand why 1 Corinthians 15 is important. It's important to your Christian life. The doctrine of the resurrection is important. You say, man, alive, this is tough sledding, this verse 29. But it's in the Bible, right? All scripture is given by what? 
and is hello. So we cover it. We preach it. We proclaim it. It's God's word. Mm. That was a bit of a rabbit trail, but it was helpful. So our sanctification depends on the hope of the resurrection. If, if there is no hope of the resurrection, then why do I need to be concerned about living a holy life? Right? Be not deceived, he says. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Well, what evil communications is he talking about? Well, I think in, in general he could be talking, speaking of any evil communication. They corrupt good manners. But in the context of this passage, what is he speaking of directly? He's speaking of those who denied the doctrine of the resurrection. And he's saying, listen, you need to understand, when you listen to that stuff, when you listen to stuff that doesn't line up with Scripture truth, that's an evil communication. And it will affect you. It will affect the way you think. It will change the way you behave. Have you ever talked to somebody about something and, and, and maybe it's a controversial thing or, or, or an obviously sinful thing and they say, well, I, I just don't see anything wrong with that. I don't believe there's anything wrong with that. Well, are you the authority? Have you become, you, have you become the sovereign authority to determine if it's right or wrong. I mean, Cain thought it was okay to bring the fruit of the ground, right? Cain could have said, I don't see anything that's wrong with this. In fact, he did. I mean, in the eyes of Cain, it was right. There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death, right? So we have to be really, really careful about esteeming our opinion of equal value of what God has said. Because it really doesn't matter how we feel about something or the way we see something because our, our minds and hearts are prone to, to deception, right? The heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. Who can know it? I can excuse a lot. I can reason with myself all day long and excuse a lot. But God in his word has said, here's what's right and here's what's wrong. And I have a responsibility to obey God. So be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. When you teach that there is no resurrection, uh, when you introduce false doctrine into the church, well, that's going to that's gonna impact the church. So he says in verse 34, Awake to righteousness and sin not. For some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. You see, oftentimes sanctification is portrayed in a way that makes us weird. All oh, those people, they act weird and they, they look weird and they talk weird. And there are so many within the church who don't want to be weird. They want to be accepted. In fact, just this past week, there was a debate uh, among Southern Baptists. And the debate has been raging for some time. Are women qualified to be pastors? 
Well, if you read the Bible, you understand that they are not. And there are those who are in the Southern Baptist Convention who are, are concerned that taking up this argument, by the way, which the Bible believers never introduced, that's important to know. Those who believe the Bible within the Southern Baptist Convention, they didn't introduce this argument. It was, it was those who challenged the Bible and said, we found a better way. They're the ones who introduced this argument. I've just been watching it from afar, you know, reading about it here and there. And, and a former president of the Southern Baptist Convention said that if we take up this issue, it's going to alienate women. In other words, this issue is going to turn women off and, and, and turn them away from the truth, and they won't want to be a part of a church like this. And here is what he's essentially saying. I'm more concerned with how the women of this world perceive us than I am with how God has prescribed that we behave. I'm more concerned that they be pleased than I am that God be pleased. You see, we're not here to, to earn PR points with the world. We're here to obey God. And when it comes to how the church conducts itself and what the church believes and what the church preaches, the standard is not to try to be palatable or accepted by the world. The standard is to please God and be faithful to Scripture. So there are a lot of lessons for us to learn here. Belief is important, and belief determines behavior. And he says, here's what you need to understand. When you try to be like the world, you're going to lose the salt and the light of the church. He says this in verse 34, for some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. If I don't believe there's a resurrection, then there's no point in me being saved. If there's no point in me being saved, is there any reason that I should go to my neighbor and talk to him about being saved? Would you like to be saved, Mr. Neighbor? Saved from what? Well, saved from your sin. Well, what does that do for me? Well, it just helps you live a good life. Well, what happens when I die? Oh, nothing. You just go to the ground. There's no incentive for salvation. There's no motive for soul winning, is there? There's no motive for soul winning. If I say, Brother so-and-so, would you please help us in the ministry here at the church? Would you give your time? Would, would you serve God with your abilities and talents and gifts that he's given you? Would you help us? He might say, well, what's, what's the point? I, if there's no resurrection, I don't have to please God. I, I'm not going to stand before him. I'm not going to give an account. You see, we lose our motivation. If I say, we ought to behave like Christians, but I say, there's no time for us to meet with the judge. Uh, we're just going to die, so we might as well live it up. Then there's no reason to live a sanctified life. So the, the doctrine of the resurrection, the truth of it, is important. And here are some practical reasons it's important. It's important for our salvation. 
It's important for our service. It's important for our sanctification. Let's thank the Lord for it. Because Paul said, Christ is risen. Thanks be to God. Thank you for listening. We pray that God has used his word to speak to you today. If you'd like to learn more about Tabernacle, you can visit us online at tabernaclebaptistchurch.com. There, you'll find additional information about our church, opportunities to partner with us financially, as well as other resources that we hope can be a help to you. May God bless you, and thank you once again for listening.